today. I've got a, a pretty colourful character who definitely goes out and has gone out and grabbed life by the horns. Largely known for his efforts inside the ring where he's accomplished multiple, multiple national and world heavyweight titles across three different disciplines. He's also starred in numerous feature films, TV series. On top of all that, he's a successful motivational and keynote speaker and somehow still manages to find the time to train fighters and create champions. He's a larger-than-life Sam Greco. Thanks for coming in, mate. Hey, Richie, how you doing? Good, good. Mate, uh, I'm having a look down at my notes here. We're going to chat about today, and it, it's pretty baffling. I'm, you got you know, close to 150 professional fights, uh, career spanning over 17 years. I mean, you got six national uh, heavyweight Kyokushin titles, world full-contact karate champion, South Pacific kickboxing titles to your name, three WAKO boxing championships titles, I mean, I could go on to your past opponents. Uh, it's the who's who of the K1 world. But where it all began, back in Brunswick, Melbourne, as a young Aussie Italian, yeah, how did it all start, mate? I believe your first passion in the sporting realm was uh, soccer too. It was indeed. Like, you know, Growing up in Brunswick, for those who don't know Brunswick, Melbourne, um, it was a rough and tough area. You know, yeah. pretty much you uh, respect was earned, respect wasn't given. Yep. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household in the 70s, you know, early 70s uh, with immigrant parents who come from Italy and it was tough. It was literally tough. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I had to abide by a lot of rules and um, we were frequently spoken to about things, but when I did the wrong thing, I was given a clip behind the ear. Yeah. Something that we don't see today. Very uh, politically incorrect these <laughs> yeah, days, mate. Yeah, yeah. There was no PC during my time, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and still isn't. But um, no, look, yeah, I grew up there and it was, like I said, it was... Um, it, it was something you had to adapt to and that you basically you had no choice there was yep. one road and it was a good road all, all the way through yep. you know growing up um during the early years uh, i had a lot of friends and a lot of mates that uh took the wrong road yep. you know i had that choice too i grew up in the same environment but i think i feared my parents more than i feared anyone else on the streets to be honest especially dad and um I'm not saying that i was scared of him but i i feared him for the good more yeah, than the yeah. bad and respect. Yeah, and respect, exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was a really big thing. And, um, you know, where everyone else went left, I went right and continued on with a sporting career, which was soccer at the time. Mm. Um, and then at the age of 15, uh, going on to 16, started playing for the first for National Soccer League, which was the NSL, which is equivalent to what the A, the, um, a League uh, the A League is today. Thank the youngest, you very much. The youngest to be signed? Yeah, the youngest time, to be yeah. signed at the yeah. time. It was funny because as a kid, as a 16 year old, I used to race home on a Monday and watch the replay of the game on SBS, yeah. which was the captain, old Captain Socceroo. <laughs> so it was, uh, by the time I got to school on Tuesday, I was a little hero. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, right. yeah. But then, you know, unfortunately, um, I had a contract dispute. I wanted to, uh, after being with the club for nearly 10 years, um, with Juventus at the time, I wanted to leave and go to do a pre-season with an opposition club, um, who, which my state coach was assistant coach here of the senior side. And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and it sort of came down to money. Mm -hmm. um, my parents didn't have the money at the time to fight it, the tribunals and everything else. So um, dad said, he pulled me from me, he says, no, we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. You don't need this. You know, this is supposed to be just a part-time thing and or passion, more yep. of a passion thing. He goes, you're not going to make money out of this. And that was his, his insight in the whole thing. Um, because sport was a part-time thing for him. He said, you know, it was more of a passion that yeah, you go out. Yeah, a profession you yeah, can exactly, go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, and um, he pulled me out of it. And um, he took me into karate. 
and so, which my sister was doing at the time. Yeah, that's right. where it all started. Yeah. Oh yeah. So like it was your, your dad's influence and your, your siblings who were in karate and doing martial arts at you eventually draw you, drew you to it. it drew me in. Uh, I suppose the reason why he did take me in is because I think he shared the same principles of discipline mm-hmm. and self-control with yep. karate. Yeah, and the structure. And, and the structure and, like, and yeah, everything, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's the key reason why he took me in there. And obviously to learn a bit of self-defense too, yeah. but primarily for the discipline thing. It's crazy how something, look at like, you'd see it, I guess, in a negative light, not working that contract out with your, your soccer club and, you know, something you, you would have, you know, ideally probably had it worked out and continued playing soccer, but that little sliding doors moment, introduced to martial arts, and look what that led to. Exactly, and I've got to admit, I wasn't one to like it when I first started. I reckon for the first probably couple of months, I fucking hated it. Excuse the French. Yeah. <laughs> I really hated it, man. It was it was just being told what to do. I had enough of that at home. You know, why would I go to a, why would I go to a karate school and be told what to do again? Yeah. But you know what? I I've got to admit. I started taking a liking to it about a couple of months later mm-hmm. when I started seeing development um, within myself. And for some unknown reason, I'd go home and I'd practice carters and I'd practice these kicks. And I thought, because I used to look at people around in, in, you know, in the class and think I want to be better than them, even as a young kid. Yeah. Competitive edge. Competitive edge. And I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing. And um, all of a sudden, rather than my dad or my mum saying, hey, you know, you've got karate tomorrow night, I'd be saying, hey, mum, you're going to take me to karate tomorrow night. And I started liking it. And, you know, I grew with it and it was fantastic. And Mm -hmm. it became a major, major part of my life. In fact, karate, I've got to say, is probably the the strength of my backbone to this very day. And I've I've got a belief, what I hear about karate in the the 80s and 90s, was it a much healthier state, you think, then than it is now um, in in Australia? Or or has it just changed and evolved? And and with the introduction of mixed martial arts, it's, uh, you know, the whole sort of combat sports landscape is pretty different now. But what, what was it like in the 80s and 90s uh, as a martial artist down in Melbourne? I think, you know, when, when you say healthier, um, probably the term you, you'd probably want to use was is traditional. Yeah. It was probably more traditional then than it is today. Yeah. Today, because of MMA and such a mixture of, um, I think traditionalism sort of fallen a bit. Yeah. Um, that was the key element. When I was doing it, it was all about traditionalism, full mm-hmm. stop, you know. We didn't have the mixed martial arts at the time, mm-hmm. but in today it's sort of changed. It's evolved because it's a mixture of everything. Yeah. Um, but as I, as I said, it, for me, it was that key element that kept me there. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And so, like I mentioned earlier, some of the the titles you won both in Australia uh, and globally. Obviously, that that drive to compete, you know, has always been there. Um, you pretty much achieved all you could possibly achieve in karate and, and kyokushin, uh, which led you into K1. I guess as a, a striker, a, a karate expert, making a cro- what's a crossover like to kickboxing? Was it? I mean, there are similarities, but there's a lot of differences as well. Was it easy to to, to jump in the ring and, and compete in kickboxing? Do you know, I'm going to go back one step. You know, the, the change from kyokushin to which traditional karate to Sato Kaikan, which is the backbone of what K1 is. And Sato Kaikan was a breakaway from Kyokushin. Kazuyoshi Ishii, who ran K1, also ran Sato Kaikan in Japan. So that was a breakaway. They approached me and, um, you know, I got offered to join their organization from a karate point of view. Gotcha. Because Kazuyoshi Ishii had this dream that a good karate guy would be able to beat a good kickboxer. Mm-hmm. And that was his drive. That was his mind. That's all he wanted to do. So he recruited guys like myself. Uh, you know, the late Andy Hug, 
mm-hmm. of the world and a few others. Former opponent. Former opponent of mine, yeah, and very good friend. And, um, you know, and uh, I think the influence there was, was the money that we're able to be paid now just to be part of an organisation. We're going to be paid, you know, to fight and paid also to win. Whereas in Kyokushin, when you fought in a tournament, you weren't paid a local tournament if you're fighting overseas, such in a world tournament, which I did. The only guys who were paid were first, second, and third. Mm. You know, when you got two hundred plus fighters fighting it over three days, last man standing. Yeah. Um, let me tell you, no foreign ever won a, won a world tournament until you know the the fourth world tournament, which was you know a few years ago now. But um, that was the remarkable breakthrough because the Japanese was winning it every time. Yeah. You know? So it was quite hard. But when you got a family, and you need to support it. Yeah. You can't do what you love right through without you know earning yeah, earning. The passion, the passion for it has to turn into a financial gain as well. Once you, you know you got family, yeah. you got a, you know, passion's great. But it, yeah, like doesn't buy bricks and mortar all the time, does it? So if you can make turn that into you know a way of earning money as well and still doing what you love, I mean that's you know, yeah. it sounds like it was an amazing opportunity. I, I imagine you would have jumped on it. it. It, I did, and um, I did it the right way. To be quite honest, I, I was in Singapore fighting and and the great Muscle Yama. The head of Kyokushin was there and I ended up having a meeting with him in his hotel room to explain to him what I was about to do and I was absolutely petrified and shit myself, let me tell you. Mm. And he walked in because he's, he's seen as the god. At the time, there was mm. 15 plus million students around the world that it was under him and uh, I was sitting in the hotel room waiting for him to come in with my interpreter and I sat there and I told him what my plans were and could you imagine him on the receiving end listening to me talk about, hey, I'd like to make a transition into another style and it was a guy who was a highly ranked guy from his style mm. as a breakaway. So it was like a slap in the face to him but I, you know, I explained to him that I had a family I need to earn money mm. um, for, in order for me to survive. You know, I still treat Kyokushin within my heart but at the end of the day, it's not paying my bills. Yeah. And he came up with this miraculous idea after about 20 minutes of just leaving me there sitting on my own. He just walked away. He came back with this miraculous idea. He says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'd like you to fight in the All Japan Tournament. And um, it's a one-day event. And he says, I'll give you 30,000 US. This is going back in the 80s, yeah? He says, I'll give you back 30,000 US. And I thought, in my own head, I'm thinking, wow, it's more than I've ever got, you know? But then there was a pause and it was like, if you win. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. If you come second, it's twenty thousand. If you come third, it's it's ten thousand. No, my luck would come fourth or fifth or so yeah. on. So I thought about it. And I said, look, can I think? Can I take this away and think about it? And he says, no, I respect that. When I went away, I got back to Australia. I wrote back to him and said, look, appreciate your offer, your gesture, and everything else. I said, I'll never forget where home is, but it's time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. He was very respectful, very very respectful. I did it the right way, and. Um, you know, he wrote back and said, look, I'd still like to invite you to the fifth world tournament or the fourth world tournament, sorry. Um, and I knew what was going to happen if I did go over there. They'd, they'd bomb me with, with all the greatest fighters in the world, yeah. irrespective. <laughs> and I just, look, I refused. I said, you know, thank you, but no thanks. I've time for me to move on. And it was probably the best choice I ever made. And I got a lot of flack for it. You know, traditionally, a lot of the guys, all the guys saying, you know, what are you doing and so on. But you know what? It's those particular guys there that said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, where's your loyalty? Mm. Loyalty ain't shit when you know when you when you got to pay bills, you know it ain't gonna it ain't gonna happen on its own. And uh, all those guys there that opened their mouth are the same guys that came over came out, in the you. later years. Yeah, but you're still flying the flag, aren't you, for for your Kyokushin and, and traditional martial arts, and you're competing in a, in a different arena, um, and just showcasing how effective that skill set of traditional karate can be in you know in the ring against 
kickboxers, Muay Thai guys, um, and then we see, you know, fast forward to today's day and age, how effective it is in, in the octagon and mixed martial arts. So, yeah, I would have thought they would have been kind of a little bit supportive and excited to go and showcase, you know, the skills that you can gain in Kagoshin on a world stage and against different styles and show effect, how effective it is. Yeah, look, you're 100% right in what you're saying, and I'm totally on your side, but, but I think from their point of view was we're losing someone valuable. Yeah. You know, someone who is flying the flag, we're going to lose them, someone else is going to own them. But at the end of the day, as I said to you, I'm loyal and I don't forget where home is. Mm. And an interview like today or any other interview that I've done around the world, I always say, you know, traditional karate kyokushin has been my backbone. Mm. It's basically been my strength, not just in martial arts itself, but not just in my fighting, but also in life. You know, it's it's I've been able to pick myself off the ground because of the mental discipline that I've got, mm-hmm. you know, through the sport. Yeah. You know, it isn't just about kicking and punching. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you mentioned it earlier about being introduced to martial arts early in your life and giving that direction and you know that discipline i mean that's what i guess with the introduction of mixed martial arts in today's day martial arts as a whole get a bit of a knock you know because people think of martial arts now think of you know inside the octagon they forget about all those positive elements it brings to not only like youth but any any stage of your life it can really um be such a positive influence um yeah, and like you say, mate, from my experience, getting introduced to mixed martial arts and having that direction, that discipline, it definitely helps you stay on that right road that you you know, you know you mentioned earlier and give you something to a, a, just a really positive outlet for, you know, to, to live your life. And yeah, like I said, I think uh, anyone who's experienced martial arts can really relate to what you're saying in terms of how it, it can be... Um, you know, apply to all areas of life, you know, what you learn you know, inside the dojo. I, I really think, and I'm going to be speaking out too, but I think it should be compulsory mm. that, you know, somewhere, whether it be a part of schooling or whatever it may be, uh, you, you can't beat it. Mm. Honestly, you cannot beat it. If I've, you know, when people say, oh, something saved my life, sport saved my life. Because as I said to you, sport in general, but martial arts more so, because it kept me on the straight and narrow. It taught me that I needed to put in the hours mm. to be the best at what I did at any given time. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's a work ethic. You know, when mates of mine were out, you know, come on, Sam, let's go out. We're going out Saturday night. We're going to have a big one. We won't be home till Monday. Mm. It was like, you know, fuck off, guys. I'm not doing it. You know, I can't. Oh, why aren't you doing it? But, you know, they, as time drew on, they started to understand Mm. that how important it was to me. And support what you're doing. You know yourself and you've been there. You can't do this shit part-time. You've got no hope. Yeah, yeah. You respect the sport enough to know that you can't go in half-hearted. yeah, it, it is a sport with consequence, obviously. Like, it's, like I said, it's not around a goal if you're going out there. And if you are going to get involved, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's not one to go in half hard. You've got to put the time in in the gym, like you said. And yeah, it can be hard to make those sacrifices, especially as a young fellow growing up, speaking from my own experience, not going out with your mates all the time. And, you know, they them giving you shit initially. But once they see you achieving what you, you know, you, you set your your mind on achieving inside the, you know, the cage or you know, karate or whatever martial art is you chose uh, to pursue, you know, they become pretty quick supporters and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great influence. And I agree introducing it to um, you know, kids in, through a schooling um, you know, program or I've worked with kids in the PCYC and they, they put a program called Back on Track. Just kids who are just you know, not bad kids, just getting a bit of trouble, maybe come from a, a difficult home life. And the introduction of martial arts, it just really humbles them. And they, you know, kids are walking around with their chest out. It really brings them, you know, down to size. And, you know, just the simple fact of training with different people who they never interact with. You know, they might be get paired up with like a petite little hairdresser who's, you know, kicking the shit out of them. And then, you know, you're about at the end of it, shake hands and you're all friends by the end of it. It's a, it's a really good 
uh, vehicle to, yeah, open th- their eyes to mm. know the world because, yeah, it's a, I, I couldn't agree more that it should be somehow implemented in our schooling. Yeah, it's, look, it's, it, the unfortunate the unfortunate thing, I'm going to go slightly off, off track here, but this, the most unfortunate thing that I've sort of discovered over the last you know, 15 years, uh, you know, the media have really branded the fight game as thugs. Mm. Because the bad publicity that you yeah. know, all they're focusing on is the kicking and the yeah, punching it, and the, exa- the exactly right. And, you know, yeah. and you know, I had a lot to do with the cage being brought to Melbourne. I don't know whether you know, you heard about that. It was all over the papers. Mm. Um, but you know, when they asked me, when the you know, commissioner asked me, sports commissioner asked me, you know, why the cage? Um, because the Liberal Party back in Melbourne, in Victoria, wouldn't allow it. And when Labor, if Labor got in, we'd we'd get a chance. And I said, look, guys, stop calling it a cage. Call it a safety enclosure. Yeah. Because that's exactly what it is. And I'm talking from experience here. I said, I've fallen out of the ring a few times and hurt myself. I said, and I was, I was doing kickboxing there at the time, a K1. And uh, when I started doing MMA, you've got more chance of falling out the ropes yeah. than what you have in a cage. You can't Absolutely. fall out, full stop. So use it as a safety enclosure. It's about protecting the fighters. And you remember, you've got two skilled athletes in there. Sure, I can understand it does look barbaric in a cage. Yeah. Anything in a cage Very looks barbaric. Very confronting to a lot of people for the who don't average, understand. Exactly right. Mm. But when you start understanding, like you know, I mean, like yourself who've done the sport or understand a little bit about the sport too, the, the average guy, they'll understand what happens on the ground. You know, there's the structure of moves and the yeah. feeling that goes on there, whether it be standing up. I mean, the blood looks looks terrible. Yeah, even myself being in the game for 30 odd years, it looks terrible. But that's with all the sweat and everything else. When yeah. you wipe all that away, it's probably a small a cut scratch. anyway. So, you know, we've been branded with a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it's for the safety of the fighters. Mm. You know, it's about building It's about building individuals. And I can tell you one thing, you know, doing what I do today, and you brought up about, you know, getting the old little hairdresser coming in to train. I've had those sort of students and I've had mm. those sort of people. And the greatest thing that's come out of it is they've had a mentor to look at mm. and it's taken them off the streets. It's given them a different train of thought. So yeah. a lot of great things come out of it and that's what, the media and the general public don't see. Yeah. And I wish there was a lot more people like yourself or myself or a few others that will get out there and do a lot more of what we're doing mm. because it's it's such a beautiful art that, you know, I'm going to put my, my foot down here and say it saved people's lives. Absolutely. And, yeah, like you said, it's it's unfortunate that people only see it for the tip of the iceberg you know, and they, they see the, the striking element. And, you know, and it's judged blood. on that, yeah. And they, all the, the, the positive things introduced to lives are, are you know, uh, overseen, unfortunately. But... I think in time, people ed- you know, educate themselves a little more about the sport and um, it'll be a slow burn, but hopefully we'll get there in the end. <laughs> yeah, and, I hope and so martial too. arts uh, and combat sports are seen in a different light and, and mm. all those positive attributes are really brought to the front. But, uh, mate, let's go back to K1 for a bit because it was such a, a crazy time. It was some of the first introductions of, of martial arts that I saw. I remember I was in the Philippines uh, on a surf trip and someone put a VHS tape in and it, it was some of the K1 fights. Um it's almost like a golden era of combat sports that you know in Japan. What was that like? Like, I mean, I look at some of your, your past opponents. You got Kokrop, Ernesto Hoost, Ray Sefo, Peter Ertz, Jerome Labana. Like, they're the who's who of the K1 arena. Uh, you shared the ring with them. Even stepping inside the the, uh, the MMA arena against Leona Machida, another traditional martial artist. Um, that must have been a wild ride. Eh? Going through Japan and and the fans over there are like nothing else and. And being on that stage fighting uh, some of those opponents, it must have been fond memories. Yeah, fond memories. I'll tell you what, it's it's just something I think about every day, you know. And I've got to say, I was very fortunate to be part of K1 when it first started back in '93, '92, '93. Mm. Um, 
as I said to you, I was there on a karate basis when after I won the world tournament. Uh, Kazuyoshi Ishii, the head of the organisation, said, you know, I'd like to get you karate boys, yourself, Andy Hug, mm-hmm. and a couple of others to fight against the kickboxers. And, um, <laughs> you know, talking about traditionalism, of, of the art is one thing, but then you also got your instructors or your, your, your head chief saying, you, hey, you're fighting in two months' time and you're going to fight Peter Ertz. Mm. You know, you know Peter, Ertz was, Peter Ertz was my second fight ever in Japan in kickboxing. I mean, who would take that fight? But I had no choice. Yep. If I wanted to be the best, and that's what he wanted to prove, I wanted to be the best, I had to take those. And, you know, I took on him and, I, you know, I went the distance with Peter Ertz for the first time. He's a guy that I had never been able to beat. I fought him twice, <laughs> never been able to beat him. It was tough. But it was interesting the way K1 worked and the development of it, you know, over the years. The original guys, such as, you know, the Andy Hugs of the world, the Jerome Labanas, the uh, Ernesto, who's Peter Ertz, Mike Bernardo, myself, mm-hmm. Ray Sefu, etc. That was the core that was us. And then what we do, K1 would put us up against the rest of the world and yeah. keep introducing keep introducing fighters. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like constantly, you know, we'd be on a winning streak and you'd get the stadiums would be absolutely full. Absolutely full. And I'm talking about mega, mega. It were mega stars during that time. And, yeah. you know, as time went on, things grew. You know, we had merchandising. You know, we had PlayStation game. Figurine Xbox, dolls. Figurine dolls, you know, <laughs> six-foot cutouts. You know, I, I, I've got to say, in the later stages, I'm going to say this on air, they had dildos on some of the guys. I won't mention whose, but it wasn't mine, that's for sure. But anyway, um, but, uh, you know, it, it was ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the publicity they put out there was amazing, yeah. and we did TV commercials. It was basically what the UFC is today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when I look back financially of what we're getting paid then to today, we we're doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. Very well, you know? Yeah, uh, I've heard... Um I mean, and understandably, with the, the amount of tension and the crowds and, you know, the fans that were, you know, flocking to see these events, you can understand why you're, you're getting paid, you know, accordingly. Um, when, like, oh, oh, <laughs> you were, back in the early days, you know, you're, you were bringing across that, some of that martial arts influence. And I, I watched a clip, you're knocking guys out with Superman punches before they even knew what they what they were called. I was watching. You know, the commentator was. Oh, there was a, a straight leaping right hand. He just leapt right in. He did, really didn't know how to describe what he just witnessed. Was that an influence from you know your sort of karate background? Just thought this is so applicable in you know in K one and the kickboxing arena. Was it fun to introduce the masses to different styles for what they haven't seen? Yeah, it was. It was. But you know, I was a very creative, creative person. Um, also, at training, I, I tried things and tried things. I tried to be different. Mm-hmm. And you know, everyone wanted that signature move, mm-hmm. and that was 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 going to be one of my signature moves. I had no idea what it was like until I started practicing at, at, at training. Yeah. I was pathetic at it, and yeah. I did it so many times until that timing was perfect. Yeah. Um, and on that night, it just fell into place. You know, I remember fighting for the it was for the South Pacific title against Simon Sweet, the New Zealand champion. It was my first kickboxing fight, and uh, I hit him with a Superman punch, and that sort of it all evolved for me there. Did I do it again in other fights? No, I didn't. I think I did it one and left, left what, it as yeah. that. It was just a perfect highlight reel <laughs> knockout. Was, you don't have to yeah, improve on that. It was, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to try anything. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to try anything, and um, that I did that night, and I got, you know, sort of known for it. Well, and now know? it's almost become a, a stock standard um, yeah. now piece of weaponry for any martial arts fighter they all run throws a superman punch uh, it was classic to see it uh, perform back in the day when 
the poor commentator didn't didn't know how to describe it. It was uh yeah, it was awesome. There's nothing better than enjoying a technique like that. It's just so crisp. Um, and I mean that night, honestly, it was effortless. Yeah. But I had to do it again. I'd probably have to put too much effort yeah. into it. You know, be seen. The K1 scene was huge in Japan. Uh, I still think as like you know the golden era, definitely of of kickboxing and and you know fighting inside the ring. What were those early days like? And some of those huge fights against those opponents that still, um, you know, are some of my favourite guys to watch. Yeah, look, those those early days were definitely tough. Um, it was a massive transition for me coming from, you know, from an art or a discipline that didn't involve head punches to head punches, mm-hmm. to having head punches being thrown. Um, there was a lot of critics out there at the time, and that's what I had to fight against at the start. Was you know here's a guy going being the best at his sport in full contact karate going into kickboxing. Critics were saying, could he take a punch or not? A lot of them disagreed that I'd make it. You know mm-hmm. they, they said that I wouldn't make it, and but that negativity is what drove me to yeah. be successful. Um, you know when I flew into Japan, the Japanese you know welcomed me with open arms, obviously because of my martial arts background. But in that transition. Can I tell you, it's it was the most painful transition ever. I mean, going back to your apartment after a hard sparring session and your head's throbbing, you're mm. carrying your bag, um, and not many people see this or hear about this. You know, fucking here's a guy, you know, weighing in at you know, at the time 105 kilo, you know, ball of muscle, walking back home with his bag in his hand. He's got fucking tears coming out of his eyes. Yeah. You know, thinking, why the hell am I doing this? Why you know? am I chasing this? Why am I chasing this? You know, yeah. do I need to feel this shit all the time? You know, but sure enough, I'd be there again tomorrow morning and I'd be back there in the afternoon. It's just come with the sport. And um, if you wanted to be the best at it, I just had to continue, you know, pursuing my dream, you Mm -hmm. know, of being being the best. You know, and there come a time, uh, what I realised throughout, throughout, you know, that transition is there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. Mm. You know, it's not the good days that's going to make, it's the bad ones. It's really going to test you and make it. and through my discipline, through martial arts, that's what kept me going. Mm-hmm. And the, the Japanese were relentless, you know. They wanted you to do well and they'd source information for you and they sourced the best guys out to come out and spar. You know, as much as I think, oh, God, am I sparring him today? I'm so grateful today yeah, that I yeah. did because I it really established who I was. And when I did step in the ring with other guys, I said, look at me, mate, you're in for a war today. Yeah. So I've gone from being that, that guy making the transition, oh, shit, what if, to... Hey, bring it. Let's go. Yeah. So created they they did help create the individual. That was the beautiful thing about K one themselves. But as I said, you know all the K one fighters that I've mentioned before, we were family. You know, it was a golden era yep. from ninety three to about 2000 and, uh, 2004, 2005. It was it was it was a golden era. Mm. You know, that's the time you wanted to be there. That's the time everyone was family, and we we we'd fight we'd fight together in the ring. It was business. Yeah. But when we got out, before and after, mate, we'd sit together, we'd laugh together, we'd joke together, we'd party, we'd do all that. Yeah. It was all great, and that's what made us family. But when it came to business, God, yeah. we were there, and we always stuck together. Yeah, you know, and put on some of the most amazing fights that you know, yeah, you want to witness. They were, they, were, they were tough fights, but you know what? Like, as I said to you before, the, the Japanese crowd, it didn't matter whether I fought you today and then mm-hmm. fought you again in a month's time, they still packed the stadium Yeah, because it was about the fighting. Yeah. You know, in the later stages, and this is the saddest bit about K1, um, and I had a bit of a bit of a, an input into it. I had a, um, I call it the demise or, or the downfall of mm. what happened with K1. Um, I had a really bad shin injury 
um, back in the early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, doctors had told me, look, you need six months off because mm -hmm. if you snap that thing, they're gonna, we have to rod that up. It'll career, be all over. Ending. Yeah, it'll be career ending. From my point of view, I thought, look, I'm still young. Mm. It's worth taking a rest, six to 12 months. Um, it's either that or my career. Yeah. From the Japanese point of view is karate spirit. We need you to be here. But hey, guys, I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Under medical, under medical advice, I can't do it. So I decided to take a break. They were absolutely dirty on me. Um, but I said, guys, if you want me to come back, I said, I will, but don't be like this. Yeah, yeah. And they got really dirty on this whole thing. And uh, so I decided to uh, take a break. And during that time, is I flew to America and I was overseeing a friend of mine who was involved with WCW, the wrestling organization over there. And he says, have you given this a crack before? And I said, nah. I said, look, I don't want really to do anything where I'm going to be making shin contact. Yeah. I said, I'm off because my contract just expired with, with K1. So he says, why don't you try it? And I said, no, nah, I'm really not interested. You know, this, this stuff's fake. Yeah. You know, sure enough, two weeks later, I'm going to find myself in the ring and yeah. training. <laughs> and that's where I got to meet a gentleman by the name of Bob Sapp. Yeah. Big 180 the kilo. Beast. Yeah, the beast. And Bob and I became really good friends and we both made... Um, made WCW uh, cut, and we both got contracted with WCW, a three-year deal. And at that time, I was really enjoying myself and found that, you know, even though people think you know, professional wrestling is uh, is fake, all the bumps, the, all the chairs, tables, and blood is all real. Don't kid yourself. Yeah, I've, you know, I've heard that mean, like, yeah, because you, it might be choreographed stuff, doesn't mean it's not. No, no, body, it, hey? it, that there, it, let me tell you, it, it's, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts if you're not, uh, I haven't taken that many bumps in my life, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and from someone like Bob Sapp, yeah. you're not going to be little, little feather dust. And it was, tickles. to cut a long story short, so I wrestled, I had about 50, 55 wrestling matches. I traveled with them back to Australia, did a tour with them. And um, while I was over here actually filming, I was filming Scooby-Doo, the movie, back in 2001. I got a call from Bob Sapp and I was away for three months. They allowed me to go away, the WCW, and I said, I said, what's up, Bob? He says, I've got some bad news. He says, well, I said, what's the bad news? He says, WCW's closed down. So I laughed on the phone. He says, why are you laughing? I said, I've got a no-fire contract. If they close down, no fire, they still have to pay me. Yeah. So I don't really give a shit. They've got another year and a half to pay me. So he's down in the dumps. He goes, what am I going to do? You know, I need to pay bills and so on. I said, wait till I get back. I said, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I said, we'll have a chat. So when I got back to the States, I said to him, do you want to fight? And you obviously know how big Bob Sapp is, yeah? Yeah. The guy was massively, he was monstrous, but he was strong at the same time. Now, big coming from a wrestling bat, you've got to be athletic too. you got to be athletic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was an ex-NFL player too. Yeah, yeah. But because of Achilles problems, yeah. um, he couldn't continue. But... What was quite interesting, I said to him, would you like to fight? And I said, I can train you up. You can come over to K1. I said, I'm, I'm going to go back there. Mm. And he said to me, no way, no fucking way. You shit scared. Absolutely shit scared. Didn't want to fight. And I said, what about I start training you and we get ready for something? And he says, no, I'm not doing it. At that particular time, there was an event in Chicago, an NFL player by uh, Perry the Refrigerator, <laughs> right? And they offered Bob Sapp the fight. Well, I put my hand up for it and Bob goes, you're crazy. I said, come on. Let's go ahead and do this. And he goes, no way. And I literally had to talk him into it. So we got training. We got all this media coverage. We went over to Chicago and we knocked out Perry the Refrigerator in the first round. <laughs> and you try to control a 180 kilo guy who's just one bouncing up and down in the ring. It's just amazing. And I said to you, come on, mate. 
I'm going to take you over and introduce you to the Japanese. And I was going to Vegas because it was a K1 event no, in Vegas. No, I'll just be like, you know, just, they'll love him. Oh, so, I knew yeah. it straight away because yeah. I, know, I know what the Japanese are like. And when I said to you earlier on, it's sort of the demise of K1, I say this respectfully. I took Bob Sapp over and the moment we got to the Bellagio Hotel and the Japanese crew came in, they had to get permission to bring the cameras in. They fell in love with him. Yeah. And I did say to Bob, do not sign anything with these guys. Have a listen to what they got to say. I'll sit with you if you like. But the Japanese had different intentions, didn't they? Yeah. They took him out to dinner. I couldn't go. So I had to listen to my superior. I couldn't go. Yeah. Um, they gave him uh, 30,000 cash there on the table. And he signed a five-year deal yeah. there and then. The guy has never fought. Don't sign anything, Bob. <laughs> and um, when he came back, I saw him the next day. I absolutely lost it at him. I said, you're an absolute goddamn fool. How could you? You've just signed your life away. Yeah. And what he was starting off on was ridiculous. And the increments they were going up was even more ridiculous. And he only realized how ridiculous it was when it was a year, 12 months into it. He's mm. thinking, I'm doing this for nothing. God damn you are. And could see the crowd. Yeah, yeah, in. yeah see exactly. the, the size of the machine that he was And Bob was an entertainment machine. Yeah. Bob was a guy who could entertain anyone, learned the language, mm. was doing TV commercials. They had they had literally everything on him. Yeah. But what you, what K1 did, they started to see, wow, this big guy here is creating us a flow of, of money. Mm. Let's do something else. So they started inviting like Chohoman, which is a South Korean seven foot yeah, yeah. friggin' whatever it is, seven foot one, seven foot two, yeah. ex basketball, another, another monster, bringing him over. And they, then they brought in Aki Bono, who was a Yokozuna, Yokozuna champion. Sumo sumo. And they started bringing all these freak shows, excuse the French, you know. And, but what they, were, what they, were, they weren't realizing was it was great from an entertainment point of view. But what was the worst thing about it? There was no fighting. And you lose credibility. Thank you. Yeah. So what happened to all the hard work we put in was all thrown out the door. So people were losing, losing that credibility. Yeah. You know, people were sort of walking out and not turning up or, you know, they were laughing. Yeah, yeah. There was no laughing when we were fighting. It was just all, it was full on. It all came down to your, your skills inside yeah. the ring and yeah. The so skills were thrown out the door. Freak shows have Spectacle. been introduced. Yeah. And that's what killed the sport. That's what killed K1. Yeah. Then obviously the big boss had a you know tax issue, a five million dollar tax issue. Yeah, went to jail on that, and um, that's the big demise of it. So I felt that I had a part in it, not not directly, unknowingly, yeah. unknowingly, yeah. yeah. And um, Bob was a hard guy to handle. And uh, as much as you know, I said, you know, stick it, I'm not doing anything. Bob, come back to Australia. I ended up flying back to look after him. Yeah, because they couldn't look after him anymore. He wouldn't leave. You yeah. know, negotiated different deals with him, got him better dollars because you know I could. Yeah. Um, you know, happy go lucky. You know, he's he, he's fine. He's still going around now, believe it or not. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've seen him still still getting there. So the, the seed you planted a long time ago is still um still kicking. Yeah, but look, you know? I'm proud proud to say that you know I'm part of that K1 family, that golden era. Will there be another era like that around again? I don't know. I don't. I, I doubt it very very much. But I'm proud to you know sit here today and talk to you and, and viewers that are listening and mm. go out and talk to different kids and it's not it's not all fun and games you know trying to be the best in the world you know well yeah i mean and you, and you just sit there you know you, you the, the things you don't see of a professional fighter's life you know walking back to your hotel or your you know your apartment with your training bag over your shoulder holding back tears because you've just been so beat up and yeah it looks all, all great when you get the win inside the in, inside the ring uh and then your hand gets raised it's all glitz and glamour but there's a lot of adversity that that gets you that point and um yeah it's not not always easy not always fun but yeah, yeah, it can also serve as motivation to, you know, to get, and then, like you said, when you 
given an opponent put in front of you you know you've put, done the work in the gym and you've you've grinded out and you've skipped no corners that it gives you the confidence that you mm. can you know, get through anyone um mate you also mentioned it there briefly that uh you were acting at the time as well yeah yeah and uh i've since seen you on all the local tv series but you know feature films as well was that something that just fell into your lap or was it something you actively went out and uh and you know seek to try and get in the acting realm or i could imagine some of your stature and you know coming off the stage of k1 and you could have been easily yeah a lot of eyes were on you so i could see mm. that yeah it could have been like a, yeah, a lot was, of offers coming your way i was i was very fortunate back in 93 a good friend of mine richard norton mm-hmm. was filming a movie in melbourne um called under the gun and he asked me to play a character in it or have a look at a character and whether i'd be interested and i said yeah look i'll try and um i've never looked back i did that was my first ever movie when i look back today was absolutely terrible (laughs) (laughs) terrible is there a z class is there a movie i think that was it um no it's uh always a baddie or a stigma with playing a playing a baddie not not a librarian or no i'm still looking for a love scene yeah (laughs) the way things are going there's a wrong love scene they want to give me but (laughs) but um no i i was very fortunate um and I've had some, you know, really good success doing some, uh, some, some, you know, TV shows, movies, and feature films, and so on, mm. ranging from, you know, from comedy to martial arts to crime, mm. uh, and so on. So, and you know, I'm really, really enjoying it. You know, mate, uh, it does look like a bit of fun. Like I said, you've, uh, you do go out and really do seem to grab horn, uh, grab life by the horns. And um, it was a little interesting too. You, you did mention earlier in our conversation about the cage ban in in melbourne and victoria uh and the, the role you played in overturning that and finally getting uh melbourne to showcase mixed martial arts in its safest environment which is in the in the cage and um i can speak as as a you know a mixed martial arts fighter just how thankful we are of the, you know of you playing a role in getting that law overturned because it was such a frustrating time to have these arguments with people who didn't understand the sport um that it shouldn't be performed inside a cage and you know the, the funny thing was the sport was still allowed to be formed in melbourne like you know mixed martial arts was still legal uh it just couldn't be performed inside a cage which was ridiculous and yeah they the ufc eventually went to melbourne soon after the law was uh overturned and you know, i was stoked uh, uh, you know it was a history breaking event i was stoked to be a part of that card and i think it was really good um looking back to have two females headline that yeah. car with yeah. um ronda rousley and holly home you know they're two you know good looking well-spoken attractive females who got extensive history in martial arts one uh, judo okay, holly home obviously in the boxing world uh, and just a great showcase of mixed martial arts to have these women just just to to break down the stigma involved with the, the sport i think it's just all bloodthirsty knuckleheads getting in there trying to kill each other you had these professional athletes who could speak well and um just really change the perception of, of the sports uh mate uh, i know yeah a lot of work went on behind the scenes so uh, yeah thank you very much for for sticking your head out on the chopping block in a way and um and you know going in the bat for for the sport yeah look i, I think it's only right it, the the sport needs a bit of respect too mm. and obviously the recognition and respect and and why it should be allowed in in the ring and not in the cage is beyond me. Mm. You know, let's look at it. It's all about the safety of the fighters. It's not about the fight itself. It's about the safety of the fighters. And for that type of sport, mixed martial arts, which involves numerous amount of, you know, disciplines, you know, whether it be wrestling, mm. judo, BJJ, whatever it may be, you need a surrounding. That's all there is to it. You need a cage surrounding. Yeah. 
It looks barbaric. I'm going to say it again. Yes, it does, even for Mike, but it doesn't matter. All I'm saying to you is you've got to understand you've got two professionals in there. You've got, you've got judges on the outside. You've got a professional referee medical inside. Medical staff. Yeah, yeah, you've got medical staff sitting by, doctors. You've got everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what these people don't see on the outside. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's about an education. If honestly, if there was a documentary that could come out Mm. on the behind the scenes and sort of explaining what's involved yeah. before you step in that cage, I think they'll respect it a lot more. You know, and but more so, you know, for example, even yourself getting ready for a fighter myself is trailing trailing two of the best fighters around, having a look at their lifestyle. Not about the glitz and glamour, because the unfortunate thing is they always see the guy on stage with his hands up in the mm. air, the winner. That's all they see and they say, Oh, that's easy, or that was barbaric, that was shocking, you know, all the blood and everything. But let's have a look at the the backlog of work that's actually been done as a leader. Yeah. Learn to appreciate, learn to respect the two people that are in there. Mm. Sure, the fight can finish in 10 seconds. The fight could finish in 25 minutes. But there's 200 hours of training that have gone in there. Exactly. All you know? the sacrifices go Do into Do we see it. that? You know? So filling people in, I think the general viewer in, well, would be awesome. Mm. You know, give them an education. I think the sport will respect it a lot more. Boxing's been around for centuries and centuries, guys. Yeah. Come on. This is no different. Roman wrestling, you know, back in the olden days, this has been around for years. Yeah, we just modified it and made it more modern. And I think, too, we've modified it. Obviously, um, you know, boxing is just it's just head strikes and body strikes, you know, and if you, you you get knocked down, you get stood back up and pushed back in there, if, you know. <laughs> uh, whereas mixed martial arts, there's so many different components to, to the fight game with all the submissions, the grappling, um, you know, and if you do get clipped and put on your bum, generally the fight's ended because the ref, you know, is there to stop it, so... That's for the safety of the fighters, exactly. and that's what they're there for. Yeah, um, and, and I'd love to, 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 to showcase what does go in inside a gym from, you know, Monday to Friday. So it's a, yeah, just the day-to-day happenings inside any martial art gym and just educate the public about that and just to see you know, this is all part and parcel of what you know the final result you do see about two fighters stepping inside the cage on the night but you know this is what they do inside the gym this is the kids class you know like all that lifestyle of of, of um you know what happens inside these gyms and the sacrifices that make the clean living that that has to you have to apply to get to that you know to that level it's uh yeah so so many amazing things that i'm unfortunately get overlooked by um mm. you know what you finally see on the night um you're a trainer yourself. You've got a, a bit of a, a stable down there. Obviously, the, probably the, the most highest profile uh, guy you got fighting in your stable is Jimmy the Brute Crew. He, uh, he's seven and zero. He has the uh, the Hex Light Heavyweight title to his name. Um, I hear too he'd be uh, getting a start on Dana White's is it Tuesday Night Contender Series. Yeah. So uh, big things happening down there in Melbourne for for some of your guys. Yeah. Look, Jimmy's. Uh, I think Jimmy's a kid everyone would love to have. He's just. Sort of country kid coming yeah. to the city, he's lost in the city, believe it or not. Yeah. He loves the country life. But um, look, he's a kid I absolutely admire. He's like a, like a son to me, to be honest. And um, Jimmy came with a bit of a you know BJJ background, mm-hmm. had no striking at all, yep. was to no stand up, uh, was never afraid to blue. Let me tell you, he's to get in there with didn't matter who it was he when was he first come training, the loading everything up, you know, loading it up from Sydney to <laughs> Melbourne. He was. But um, finally got, got hold of him and um, could see the potential in this kid. And the beauty about it was he was disciplined. Mm-hmm. He'd listen. Yeah. You know, and those two factors there caught me straight. And he was a good kid, come from a very good family. And uh, 
it was tough early in the early in, early in the start, and it wasn't. I said to Jimmy, it's it's about not taking that punch. It's about making miss making them pay. That's what it was, you know. Yeah. I don't care whether you can take it because fighting smart. yeah, fighting smart. Toughness not hard. is great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you'll need it somewhere along the line, but yeah. you just got to fight smart. You know, they can't hit what's not there. They used to say to him. And uh, the kid put uh, put in training, you know, above and beyond, and that's what I liked about him. And um, he stuck it out. And look at him today; he's seven and zero, and he's not afraid to stand up with anyone. He doesn't care who it is. Yeah. And he'll make you miss, and he'll make you pay. And if you go to the ground, mate, he's a shark. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched him uh, fight. Yeah, a mate of mine, uh, Nathan Reddy, and extremely impressive. Mm. You know, Nathan's you know a very handy fighter, but um, you know, he did take him to the ground, like you said, and he's no joke. Uh, you know. Jimmy Crute when he hits the mat. So exciting times for yourself and, and Jimmy. Um, no, now ch- chasing things abroad. Um, the goal is to get the UFC or, or just see where the journey takes you? No, look, our goal is you need to have a goal in life. You need to have something to look at in order to aim for. And uh, obviously the UFC is the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, obviously the UFC have got a monopoly on the world of fighting today. So that's exactly where we're going and nothing's going to stop us. And we, we've been given a great opportunity to fight on Dana White's uh, contender series. That Tuesday night contender series. So, um, mate, we're going to take the bull by the horns. And let me tell you, you know, Jimmy will impress. He's a, he's a tough kid. He's relentless. Mm. If you step in the cage with him, prepare for a f- fucking fight because that's all he says. He so says, I'm not afraid. Got that country you work know? ethic, eh? Yeah. I, I know a few mates of mine who come from the country. They, they just come to training with a different perspective. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they know nothing's given to you. They, nothing's handed to you. They do, but his life has changed. You know, coming from, he's a country kid, his life has changed coming to the city in terms of his training regime. Um, now you know he has a management six degree management that looks mm-hmm. after him. You know he's got dietitians that look after him. You know he's training. I've got strength endurance coaches. I've got physios. Mm. So we've got a whole team. It's something he never ever thought of before. So another um, part of the sport too that people yeah, don't, don't realize. It's a massive you know, part of the yeah, sport. It's, such a, it's getting so scientific and so professional. Yeah, it, it, you know it's amazing and. Yeah, it's great to see you because I think the spectacle on the end of the day just is just is forever improving. Every every show I you know event I, I go and see, I'm just blown away by the performance of these fighters. So, yeah, Jimmy Cruz, he, he's ticking all the boxes. Yeah, so. look, he is, and I, I think he'll do extremely well. Come you know, July the 24th, and uh, he'll be flying the Australian flag. Yeah, and like just to add on to what you you know the role you played down in getting that band overturned in Melbourne, that obviously rolled into Perth too. This year they had their first UFC event. So, yeah, the work you, you know, the financials you laid in Melbourne, uh, you know, we continue to see the benefits of that. So, yeah, again, really appreciate I know how many fighters were, were stoked to uh, have that overturned and be a part of such a, you know, historic event because it just, yeah, still broke, I think, numbers for, the, the, you know, the amount of people in that arena and uh, the eyes on that event. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very, very huge thing to be a part of and we're still seeing the, um, you know, the benefits of that now. Mate, you've also... Getting into speaking, uh, motivational keynote speaker. What, what is next for you, mate? What are, what's on the horizon? <laughs> you never, I'll never cease to amaze. You could tell me anything, mate, and I, and I wouldn't doubt you. So, yeah, what, what do you got? You no, know? look, one of, one of the biggest drives I've got in life is is the experience that I've had. You know, in in martial arts, is actually translating that into everyday life. Mm-hmm. People find it hard to understand, but I go out and do a talking circuit. I've got a circuit called I Am a Fighter. Now, people say, yeah, stands to reason. You know, you've been fighting all your life. You've had 147 fights, whatever. That's got nothing to do with that. I love the association with the word fighter because for me, being a fighter means not giving up. It means fighting against adversities, fighting harder when the chips are down. I mean, there's the, those of us in the room right now here that I'm talking to, I'm pretty sure everyone's fighting a fight that I don't know about and you don't know about. Exactly. You know, so that's what the I'm a Fighter campaign's about. It's about 
lending that hand. It's about talking, being a mentor to someone. It's about you know teaching them the, you know the ethics of not giving up. You know there is a solution. Yeah. You know there's no problems. There's solutions. Let's let's work on it. And be careful what you say to people in certain areas, in certain places, you know, because you don't know their background. You don't know how they're being brought up and so on. You know, so I go and talk about that, talk about education. That education starts at home, not at school, you know. Um, And I'm finding that, you know, the message is, it's quite simple. But I've translated what I've done through my martial arts into life itself. Mm. You know, people, unless they hear me or hear others talk about it specifically, don't know the relevance until you know can't join uh, uh, yeah and can't join so that's what i go out and i talk to big corporate groups all over australia and around the world um local footy clubs and you name it um one-on-ones i mentor that's what i enjoy doing i get such a buzz out of it because if i can put a smile on someone's face and get that chin up for them um and i've done my job and sometimes people need a mentor sometimes they need someone to look at you know or look up to yeah. um I don't care whether I know you or I don't know you. I'm happy to know you, mate. I'm happy to put my arm around and say, mate, everything's going to be all right. You know, let, let's work on it. Yeah. Um, it's not about how much money I've got or how much money you've got or how much money I can give you. It's got nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, it's about every morning just putting your feet on the ground and, mate, just be grateful that, you know, you can smell the roses. Yes, exactly. So easily overlooked, like you said, um, yeah, you can get caught up in the problem and, and yeah, and about the bad luck you might be experiencing, but it's, uh, it's very important to... To look ahead and forward at the solution and stay positive and uh people like yourself giving that guidance uh you know i'm sure many many are uh, great to to be uh you know to get out there and hear you speak you mentioned about you know role models so who, who influ- influenced you growing up and even today and you know i as, was as a young fella yeah look i was very very fortunate i want to say very fortunate i was at the right place at the right time while i was living in japan um i just made the transition from karate into kickboxing i went over and still doing martial arts in Japan, but there was a promoter in Melbourne called Christopher Cronus, uh, who held the biggest kickboxing shows. Mm. And um, he rang me and said to me, Sam, he says, love you to fight as an undercard to the main event on in Melbourne. I said, Chris, I'm living in Japan at the moment. Mm. I'm having a great time here. You know, I'm getting paid doing what I'm doing. He says, come on, buddy. He goes, I'd love you to fight over here. He says, would you have your last full contact bare knuckle fight here in uh, in Melbourne? And I said, money talks, shit walks, Chris. Come on, mate. <laughs> and he turned and goes, how much do you want? So I told him what I wanted because I was making money now so I could demand probably my yeah, own figure. And, uh, and um, he rang me back the next day. He says, we've, we've got a deal. And I thought, oh, God, here we go again. So I'm back in Australia for the last time. So I thought it was good because I weighed up the options. I thought, you know, it would be a good time for me to go back. I'll make some more money. It'll be my last fight, bare knuckle before I make the transition to kickboxing, it'll be, be a farewell thing. So it sort of worked out well. And I remember getting back to Melbourne, fighting this fight, and I fought a guy named Bob Crawford from Queensland. He was a policeman from Queensland. He was a full contact karate champion at the time from another organisation. So the, rule, the basic rules were, is uh, bare knuckle, you kick to the head, knee to the head as hard as you want, no protective gear, but you couldn't punch to the head, right? You could punch at the body as hard as you want and so on. So, um, May the best man win. That's basically what it was. So I remember going in there and um, I actually knocked Bob Crawford out in the first round, caught him with two punches and kneed him straight in the head, knocked him out unconscious. He was gone. He was asleep. And at that particular time, there was four individuals sitting ringside that I didn't, wasn't even aware of. There was Jeff Fennick, Kerry Packer, James Packer, and a gentleman by the name of Graham Burke alongside the, with the promoter. And um, at the end of the fight, when I was in the back celebrating with all my, all my team, which was only a small group, in come Christopher Cronus, the promoter, with uh, these four gentlemen. 
Now, I don't know who Kerry Pack is and his son and, and Jeff, but I didn't know who Graham Burke was. They come over and they shook my hand and congratulated me. And Kerry's such a big man. And um, they said, well done. But I really didn't realise who I shook hands with yeah. at the time because I was too busy celebrating, you know. Until about three days later, I get a call from Village Roadshow Pictures, which is major movie producers here in yeah. Australia and around the world. And a gentleman like Graham Burke, who was the uh, CEO with the Kirbys, uh, with Robert Kirby and that, um, invited me out to dinner. And here's a guy who's got pretty much everything. Why the hell would he want me to go to dinner? And it was purely just to celebrate my victory. So I remember going to a restaurant with my wife and met him and his wife. And when I got there, I showered with some gifts on my recent win. And uh, we started talking. And Graham's a gentleman who just cuts to the chase. Boom. He's straight there. He says, Sam, you know, how's everything going? Congratulations on your win. He says, where do you want to go with all this? And I said, Graham, you know, I want to be the best at what I do at any given time. Mm. He says, what does Sam Greco need to do to be the best? And I said, Graham, I need to live it, eat it, sleep it full time. That's exactly what I need to do. And that's the reason why I'm over in Japan. He says, how do you earn your money? I said, I teach a little bit in Japan too during my off times. And he says, okay. He goes, what does Sam Greco need to survive? And I said, what do you mean? And uh, he said to me, what do you need financially? No one's ever asked me that. Where do I start? Where do I finish? I've got no idea, you know. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, my head's clicking over 100 mile an hour. And he leans over and he grabs this menu and he rips the page off the, the top page off the menu, grabs a pin out of his jacket and writes a figure on it and pushes over towards me. But I looked at the figure and nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> but being the big ego guy here with the big shoulders and big fighter that I am, yeah. I pushed the paper back over. I said, no, Graham, thank you very much. In my own head, I go, I'm not going to be bought by anyone. I said, what's this fucking guy trying to do? Yeah. We kept talking. He held on to the paper. We kept talking for about 15, 20 minutes. And I reached over and I grabbed that paper and I pulled it back towards me. <laughs> what I realised that I was giving Graham a return, he's a guy that it wasn't about the money. Mm. He's got all the money in the world. It wasn't about the money. What I was giving Graham back, because he loved kickboxing in the fight game so much, I was giving Graham an outlet from his daily obligations of being in meetings all over the world, you know? That business nine that, five grind. Exactly. So that's, I was his escape from the rest of the world. Mm. And I realised that later on, you know? Yeah. And he says, I don't need your money. Yeah. He says, I will guide you. And the, some of the questions he'd asked me even when we were, within our first week together, he was, what he was pledging for, me, for him to be my manager, you know? And I, I didn't settle straight away with the idea. I sort of had to think about it. And then the more and more I thought about it and the more I heard him talk, I thought I could utilise this guy's expertise in business, mm. in life. Obviously not in the sport, right? But, you know, within that negotiating. Because that, that, that's that what he does. Yeah, too, he yeah. does all that. Yeah. So that's what he offered me, his expertise. And it was interesting because Graham, any form of negotiation, he says, I'm your bad guy. He yeah. says, don't you negotiate any of your deals. He goes, let me be the bad guy. You're always the good you guy. Come from that walk of life. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's so true. And I've learned so much from him. And he's been my mentor till this very day. I'm still in contact with him. Yeah, we wow. still work together. We still do stuff. And, you know, you're talking about looking up to someone. You know, there's a guy. It wasn't about the dollar. It was about how we could make it better yeah. and how we, we you know, we, we could reap so much out of it. Yeah. You know, whatever deal. And... You know, very, very fortunate that 
you know, I found someone like that. I was being in the right place at the right time. Had I not fought that day, I would never have met him, but I could ring Graham about anything. And I mean absolutely anything. Yeah. I mean, the people he sits with, you know, from the Kerry Packers of the world to Solomon Luz to all the riches of riches with actors because they do produce some of the biggest movie produ- movies in the world. I've met so many great people through him that some people would only dream of, you know. He's, I mean, you see extremely extremely fortunate to, to have met him like you said because i'm sure you know as we all do so many talented athletes in, across all sports uh abundance of talent but they lack that goddess when it comes to all the things you forget about that you know they're on the peripheral of, of the sporting arena where business deals you know contract management uh without that kind of guidance and someone who's really in it and got the the athlete's best interest at heart you know i mean you see so many sort of uh, stories of you know, things not working out the way, and and just and just yeah, people not seeing their potential and just falling on hardships because they they get attacked by you know the leeches or and there's a lot of that that they can do it themselves, you know. So can I can I can I tell you the, the thing that kept me grounded even when I was up there mm. making the big dollars? You really in life, and I say this a lot, a lot in even my talks, you've got to know what you have to lose mm. in order to appreciate where you're going. And the three things that I had to lose was one was my career. Mm-hmm. If I fucked up, I lost my career. My management, who meant the world to me, and most of all, my family. I'd ruin everything. Yeah. So when you know what you have to lose, you really hold on to it for your dear life. And you do, you take the necessary measures to make it better yeah. every single day rather than make it worse. You know, yeah. we all love the nice life of going out and partying and all that, but there's a time and place for it. Yeah. You know, you know yourself, and leeches is probably the correct word, and there's a lot of them around, and... You know, I, I was never one to have a large entourage walking in mm-hmm. because I always say, I look at these great fighters, some of these great fighters, and I have boxing for argument's sake, and they've got an entourage of about 20 or 30 guys walking out with them. When they walk through those ropes, they're walking on their own. Mm. And those 20 or 30 are sticking their thumbs and going, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know? If the result will go their way, will they still be there? Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? the exactly yeah. right. And, you know, you, the Mike Tysons of the world, the guy I absolutely admire, yeah. he realised it, you know? Yeah. All those guys are around when the money's there, when everything's flying and, and so on, and all of a sudden everything stops, you know, the right he goes. Yeah. You look around for help and you ask someone for a glass of water and you've got to get up and get it yourself. Yeah, it's true. It's you know, true. it happens to the best of us, but keep yourself grounded, know what you have to lose and just move forward. Yeah. You know, love you, I hate you, mate. Who cares? At the end of the day, you're the one who's going to pay the bills, not them. It's true. It's very true, mate. It's um, And unfortunately, sometimes... That lesson is is hard to teach you. Sometimes, yeah, you have to experience it a little bit yourself. Sometimes to, to you need realize, to fall over. Yeah. I said it before. You need yeah. to fall over to understand. Yeah, and I think that's a great another like a great way of uh, describing how how good any martial arts can be. You know, it, it helps you deal with adversity, and uh, you apply it to any walk or any part of your life. Is uh, to be able to you know deal with that kind of stuff and and build that mental toughness and the ability to to stay positive and keep moving forward. Um, Mate, we want to wrap it up, mate. I think I'll try something different. I'll call it a little, a little five punch combo, mate, to, to finish the session. I'll throw a couple, well, five quick questions at you, mate, and uh, hit me back with one word answers. If you choose to use more than one, I'm not going to argue. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll throw yeah, a couple quick questions and uh, hit me back with a quick, uh, quick answer, mate. Japan, legendary, legendary. The current state of mixed martial arts or martial arts, average, average. Politics? Hate it. We've kind of just touched on this, but people who inspire you? Family. Manager. Uh, Last one. Prefer to land or prefer to see, prefer to receive a headshot or a body shot? 
Neither. Neither. <laughs> make and miss. Neither. Make and miss, make and pay. Well, when, when, let me just rephrase. When I said average, I just think there's 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 a lot of development that that'll, we'll probably see over the next couple of years yeah. with martial arts. It wasn't a high. I wasn't a high. If you asked me this two years ago, mm-hmm. I would say I would rate it very high. It's just mm. just dropped down. Obviously, some of the best fighters are out at the moment, and so on. So, but if you're talking about from the fight from the fight perspective, if you're talking about martial arts and a general, gra- grassroots level too, like on the ground. It's yeah, still, yeah, because you are. It's like a lot, lot more publicity now. Sports getting very popular, but yeah, I, I'd agree. I'd, I'd like to see a bit more um, investment at a, at a grassroots level for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's why I said average. But otherwise, yeah, I love it. Oh, well, it's mate, my life. <laughs> it's been uh, unreal. We can see you and chat for hours. Richie, mate, thank but, you uh, very much. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, it's the been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very Thanks, much. Sam. All the best. That's excellent.